Our text this morning is Exodus chapter 12. Navigate on your device or open your Bible to the 12th chapter of Exodus. We're going to look at verses 1 through 28. The topic, Moses explains that any household that does not sacrifice a lamb will suffer the death of their firstborn. The title of our message, Night of the Lambless Dead. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was either that or Exodus 12. So let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity. And it really is an opportunity to be here because uh, even though you're omnipresent uh, and our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, you do promise in your word to be at gatherings of the church in a special way manifesting yourself. And so I pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to my heart in a new, fresh way, that you would meet me, Lord, in some of my afflictions and sufferings and some of my joys and longings, and that you would do the same for each and every person here. And Lord, each of us that knows you is burdened if there are anyone here, any people here that don't know you, that today would be a day that you free their will to receive Christ as their Savior. We thank you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. You guys still play Pictionary? It was created by a Seattle waiter at a party in the 1980s. First year on the market, three million copies of it were sold. How about Draw Something? I know a lot of you have that app. In 2012, it became the world's top-selling app in just seven weeks. Creators sold it for $180 million. I'm designing an app. I don't know what it is yet, but somebody's going to buy it. You should watch Jimmy Fallon play Pictionary with his celebrity guests on The Tonight Show. It's a hoot. If you Google it later, watch the one with Martin Short, Jerry Seinfeld, and Miranda Sings. It's classic. Playing Pictionary or Draw Something will give you a real appreciation for the people who come up with signs. It's no easy task to draw a symbol that will be universally, immediately understood by people of all languages all around the world. I'm still having trouble in the Costco roundabout. I know I talked to you about this one time before. I thought I had it conquered, but the last time I went through it, I I still had to make a couple of circles before I got out of there. And then cars are coming at you, and it's like crazy. All of a sudden, I feel like I'm in a movie, you know, one of those European movies where all the cars are going crazy. I've driven in Honduras, so I have some experience with crazy driving, Uh, but uh, that's still, I still have to avoid that. In the Bible... God gives us metaphors and allegories and similes. I don't know the differences between those terms, the subtleties, so let's agree to call them pictures, or we could simply say they are illustrations that convey spiritual truth. The Passover lamb is an especially meaningful picture to illustrate spiritual truth. The angel of the Lord was coming to kill all the firstborn of both man and beast. Moses instructed each household of Israelites to kill a lamb then apply its blood to their doors. The angel of the Lord would see the blood pass over the house, sparing the firstborn. Do you recall how John the Baptist introduced Jesus at his baptism? He looked at him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Later in the New Testament, the apostle Paul says, Jesus, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Those exclamations are rendered more meaningful by the Passover lamb as their explanation. 
As we work through these verses, I'm gonna organize my comments around two questions. Number one, why does the Lamb of God's sacrifice save you? And number two, when did the Lamb of God's sacrifice save you? Let's ask why first in verses one through 20. Now, I wanna share a doctrinal moment. The Passover lamb illustrates what theologians call vicarious atonement. It can also be called substitutionary atonement, but vicarious sounds more intelligent, doesn't it? Atonement is a term meaning reconciliation. Vicarious means done in place of or instead of someone else. So in literal terms, the doctrine of vicarious atonement is that Jesus was substituted for humanity in order to pay for the sins we had committed and thereby reconcile us to God. Mankind needs an atonement because of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. Their descendants, you and I, inherit a sin nature, and we commit individual acts of sin. The penalty for sin is death on three levels, no less. Number one, we are born spiritually dead. Number two, we will one day physically die And number three, without intervention, we deserve what the Bible calls a second death, and that is to be separated from God for eternity in conscious torment in the place called the lake of fire. It ought to be clear that a man cannot give his own life as a sacrifice because it's riddled with sin. It would be like bringing to a great king an offering of a diseased or dead animal. Such an offering would be unacceptable. Only a sinless human being could give his life as a substitute and a sacrifice for someone else. But how can there be a sinless human being if we all descend from Adam and Eve? Well, the only way to achieve a sinless human being is for God to add humanity to his deity, for God to be born a man, for Jesus to be born of the Virgin Mary. That is the one and only solution to this problem of atonement. Jesus is that God-man, and he voluntarily gave himself as your substitute and your sacrifice on the cross at Calvary. Now, I think that's a pretty clear explanation of things, but it's made crystal by the picture we get in the Passover. And so let's take a look in chapter 12. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, this month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. The first nine wonders or signs were reported in rapid succession. The 10th, the death of the firstborn, occupies a lot more space in Exodus. It isn't just because the destruction of it was so severe, and it isn't just because it marks the birth of Israel as a nation. It's because it lays the foundation for the entire program of sacrifice in the Old Testament that eventually gives way to Jesus in the New Testament. It was so important that the month in which it occurred, called Nisan, would become the beginning of months. You might be scratching your head thinking that Rosh Hashanah in the month of Tishri was the first day of the year in Israel. So how is it that Nisan is the beginning of months? Well, when we read that Nisan became the beginning of months, it means that we are to understand that the calendar feasts of Israel begin with Passover. Passover is their starting point. Passover is ground zero. If you're going to study the feasts or teach on them, you always start with Passover. Now, there are seven feasts on the calendar God gave Israel. Four of them are in the spring. Three of them are in the fall. 
there is Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and Pentecost, and then Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Tabernacles. Uh, you always start with Passover because the feasts are in a perfect prophetic order that itself is a picture of God's plan for the redemption of human beings and the restoration of creation. They are uh, telling a prophetic story about the first and the second comings of Jesus. Now, the Israelites wouldn't have realized all of this. Uh, they were getting a progressive revelation of who God was, but looking back, we see these things. Now, we spent about eight weeks or so on Wednesday night in a series on the feasts. I'm gonna summarize and say that the four, uh, the first four feasts were fulfilled by Jesus to the very day in his first coming. And that means that the final three feasts will also be fulfilled by him in his second coming. What do I mean by fulfilled? Jesus died just as the Jews were sacrificing the Passover lambs on Passover. He was in the tomb, but he suffered no corruption. We'll see that's pictured by the feast of unleavened bread. He rose from the dead on first fruits, the feast of first fruits, as the first fruits of the future resurrection. And he sent the Holy Spirit upon the church on the Pentecost following his ascension. And so when we look at those first four feasts, we see them fulfilled to the very day that they were occurring by Jesus Christ in his first coming. Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take a lamb for himself, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it, according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. If your household was too small, you must join with your neighbor. We're told elsewhere that the minimum number of people was 10. This is the first occurrence of the word congregation in over 100 uses of it in the Bible. It's a technical term for the people of God gathered together to worship him or to be instructed in spiritual things. And, and it doesn't maybe mean much to us, but hearing this for the first time, this these people, these Israelites who were enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years, hearing that they were a congregation, that God was going to take them out in order to instruct them and so that they might worship him, this would have been a tremendous inspiration to them. A spiritually exciting chapter in their existence was starting. Verse five, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. The word for lamb, according to my Strong's Concordance, means simply a member of the flock. It could have been a lamb or a goat. Later on, Jesus, when he's called the Lamb of God, that's the specific word used for a lamb. Uh, and, and so there's, just so that there's no confusion in your mind about him being the Lamb of God. Now, since we've already revealed that the lamb pictures Jesus, we note that he, of course, was without blemish, perfect in every way. Thus, he was the only possible sacrifice for your sin. Verse six, now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at night. It's interesting to note that according to most of the chronologies of Jesus' last days leading up to his crucifixion, he was in Jerusalem being examined by the religious leaders 
a period of four days. It corresponded to the examination of the Passover lamb. It's just another clue that that lamb prefigured and pictured Jesus. And as with that lamb, uh, the religious leaders could find no fault with Jesus. They had to make up charges against him and hold him in false arrest and false trials in order to send him to crucifixion. Now, the Passover began around 3 p.m., allowing for the butchering. Dinner was at twilight, and the night continued until midnight, and then they were up from midnight until dawn, and that's when they left. So this was one long night of waiting upon the Lord to see what he was doing. The gathering in each household was to carefully observe a few things, starting in verse 7. They shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Don't eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire, and thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And so it's a symbolic meal, uh, and so you didn't really have uh, the opportunity to elevate the meal by surveying it or anything like that. It was, you know, th- let's get this thing barbecued, eat it all, anything that's left you're going to burn. Now, I don't know why, but whenever the Passover comes up, I feel compelled to point out that very little of what in modern Passover celebrations was in the original. Now, that's not to say it's being celebrated improperly because God, we'll see in a minute, gives us freedom in these areas. Just want you to realize that a lot of stuff has been added to it that wasn't in the Bible. When I was a young Christian, I attended uh, or became aware of a Passover Seder, they call it. Seder, I think, just means order of service, where you sit and someone takes you through the order of the Passover meal. And I mean, there are like 50 different things in it that speak of Jesus. There's all kinds of symbolism like hitting you left and right. And and you think, wow, this is fantastic. But nobody ever tells you most of that was added centuries later and wasn't part of the original and wasn't even in the Bible later on. And that's okay. I'm not saying it's wrong to celebrate it that way, but you don't want to go around thinking that that's how the Jews celebrated Passover from early times. So just know that, and um, if you wanna know how the Passover was celebrated, look in scripture and you'll see these scant details. Bitter herbs here would seem to remind them of their bitter bondage as slaves in Egypt. And um, different bitter herb, any kind of bitter herb you wanted to use, uh, you know, I, I would choose kale, but it's not really an herb, I guess. I was out with Marvin one day out at the farm, and he said, yeah, taste this. Give me a leaf of kale right off of it. I thought I was going to die. But uh, it's like spinach, though. It made me all of a sudden I had muscles and stuff, but I'll eat kale blended. Actually, I had a kale salad the other day. It wasn't too bad, but I didn't make it. So anyway, um, bitter herbs. You can choose whatever bitter herb suits your fancy. They were to eat it ready to move, sandals already latched, robes tucked into their belts, uh, staff in their hand. They were getting out of Dodge. One interesting observation about sandals on their feet, since they ate reclining around low tables, Jews never ate with sandals on. They always took them off and washed their feet. And not just Jews, but people in this part of the world 
who didn't eat at dining room tables, who reclined on pillows and had their legs out on the side. You don't want people's stinky, stinky feet next to you. And so typically, you would take your sandals off, a servant would wash your feet, and then you would dine. And so this was very unusual. Jesus, when he celebrated Passover with his disciples, was barefoot. Now, how do we know that? Well, because of the foot-washing snafu the night before his crucifixion. Uh, Apparently, none of the disciples wanted to take on the job of being the lowest servant and washing each other's feet. And so after a while, Jesus got up and started washing people's feet. And uh, he used it as a, a teachable moment. But that tells us they were all barefoot. And that tells us that by the time of Jesus... They were celebrating the Passover with some different uh, symbolism. Just because they wore sandals the first night doesn't mean they continued to wear sandals. And so when I said earlier that we have some freedom when it comes to God's ordinances, that's what I'm talking about. People always, maybe you grew up in a church your whole life, and then you move to another church, and you get to the point where they're going to serve the Lord's Supper for the first time. They do it differently than the church you've been to. There's a feeling of, of terror that maybe they're doing something unscriptural or, or that, you know, there is a demonic presence, you know, or something like that. No, there's freedom. As long as there's juice and a wafer and it's done reverently, it can be passed out. You can come and get it. There's a million different ways of celebrating the Lord's Supper. And the Lord does give us freedom in those areas that he hasn't explicitly told us exactly what to do. And Jesus himself had freedom to not wear sandals at the Passover, but to go barefoot, as was apparently the custom at that time. And so there's wiggle room in some of this. When we have freedom, let's exalt in it. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord." A few times in the Bible, God says, all that open the womb, meaning the firstborn, are mine. Every firstborn thing belongs to the Lord. He claims them for himself. Therefore, he expects his people to honor his claim by devoting his firstborn to him. Now, there's a number of things that we could talk about that this symbolizes. But for one thing, the firstborn is like the first fruits of a harvest. When you acknowledge the firstborn as belonging to the Lord... You're saying that everything else that comes is likewise the Lord's. And so it's just a way of saying, Lord, I acknowledge that you are the creator and you have given to me all these things. They belong to you. I am just a steward over them. Now, God said he would execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt. There were genuine powers at work in Egypt. You remember the two magicians that advised Pharaoh, they're named in the New Testament, Janus and Jambres. They could do crazy stuff. When Moses turned his staff into a serpent, they could turn their staffs into serpents. Bad for their staffs, Moses swallowed their serpents. But they really did that. It wasn't a sleight of hand. It wasn't the famous serpent trick. They had supernatural demonic power. It was no match for God's power but they had it nonetheless. And so when this says that he defeated the gods of Egypt, it wasn't that he just showed people that their wood and stone idols were useless. He defeated real supernatural powers, overcoming them. And why is that important? One commentator said this, we tend to think the lower G gods are make-believe, that they are idols of wood and stone. 
while the idols they inhabit are wood and stone and sometimes gold or silver, lower G gods that people worship are real. Just ask anyone in India, which I don't think he means to be comical. Uh, but, uh, you know, 300 million gods in India and lots of stories of real demonic action and possession. Now, we say that anything can be an idol, and then we'll point to material things or hobbies that dominate our lives, automobiles, people, hobbies, those kinds of things. Don't overlook that there are evil supernatural principalities and powers at work in the world. We don't want to get overly interested in them, but the truth is there are real forces of evil uh, against us and against God's church. Now, verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Someone pointed out that death came to every home in Egypt, either the death of the firstborn or the death of the lamb. Verse 14, so this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. God spoke to them as if they would enjoy generations of fellowship with him. What a tremendous insight this was. God, it wasn't just a one and done with God. He wasn't just breaking them loose from Egypt to leave them. He would have generations of fellowship with them on into eternity. They would commemorate Passover every year. And more than Passover, as we'll see later in Exodus, there'd be a total of seven such holidays. Uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is now explained now, they weren't able to celebrate this feast on the first Passover because they had to get out of Egypt, and so they were looking forward to the next Passover when they would add to it the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So let's read about it in verse 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, there should be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day, there should be a holy convocation for you. Holy convocation means it was considered a Sabbath. There were Sabbath days other than Saturdays. Uh, anytime these holidays uh, fell on certain days that were the first or the seventh day of them uh, here, it was a holy convocation. It says, no manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this same day I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. Leaven is what we call yeast. Although we love the benefits of yeast, it is an agent of decay. Because it has a decaying effect, the Bible always uses it as a metaphor for sin. Jesus, God's lamb, was killed and placed in the tomb. Two things to note about that. First, he had led a pure, spotless life that was unblemished by sin. Examine him four days or four decades, there was no fault to find. We could say of his entire life that it was unleavened. Second, although in the tomb for parts of three days and three nights, his body would not see decay. The apostle Peter would say of it, uh, quoting Psalm 16, you will not abandon my soul in Sheol, nor let your holy one see corruption. And so we would say of him in the tomb that he remained unleavened. And so this Feast of Unleavened Bread pictures, looks forward to, is a Pictionary of Jesus Christ's burial. 
In verse 18, in the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. Passover was on the 14th of the Jewish month, Nisan. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was to begin on the day after the Passover and continue for seven days. The first and last days, the 15th and the 21st, were Sabbaths on which no work was to be done except cooking. Later, we'll learn that a third feast, first fruits, also occurs during this time period. And so Jesus was like a lamb without blemish or defect. John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle Paul wrote, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And then in the book of Hebrews, we read that it's through Jesus' sacrificial death that our sins are forgiven and our death sentence is canceled. The Passover lays the foundation not only for the Old Testament sacrificial system, but also for our ultimate redemption through Jesus Christ, a redemption which the Old Testament sacrifices could never accomplish. It wasn't lambs that God was interested in. It was them picturing Jesus as the Lamb of God. And so no wonder then that this Passover pause is so distinct and we're spending so much time on the Passover uh, in this book. Vicarious atonement is God's plan to save you. You must be saved God's way, not by some other plan of your own devising. One commentator reasoned, you may reason about the peculiarity of the method of salvation. You may think that other means will be more effective to the end desired, but if you at last are found out of the divine way of safety, you will inevitably be lost. The blood of Christ sprinkled on the heart is the only sign the destroying angel will recognize with regard as the token of safety. And so what we're talking about is this. Every other religion and philosophy of the world, every other way that claims to save you or get you into heaven lacks one important necessary ingredient, and that is the sacrifice of the sinless Son of God as your substitute. The rest of them are systems of works. You have to do something, some things, in order to make yourself approved before God, but that is silly because you are already born dead in trespasses and sins. Before you ever get to the point where you're starting to even think about making yourself ready for God, you're hopelessly lost and decayed. Someone must take your place. It isn't Buddha, it's not Muhammad, it's not Confucius, it's not John Paul Sartre, it's none of those guys because they are all faulty human beings. It has to be the sinless savior, Jesus Christ. It's the only way of salvation. But it's a great way of salvation because it's offered to you freely by God's grace and all you do is receive it by faith, which is what we're gonna talk about in just a minute. And so why did, does the Lamb of God's sacrifice save you? Because it's God's way of salvation. You see how it makes sense, but even if it seems peculiar to you, it is nevertheless revealed as God's way of salvation, Jesus, your Savior. Now, in verses 21 through 28, when did the Lamb of God's sacrifice save you? Last week, we explained why we believe that Egyptians could have been spared by doing what God told Israelites to do. 
With each wonder, there came a warning, and more than once, certain Egyptians heeded God's warning and lives were spared. Please note, too, that individual Israelites were not automatically spared. God didn't say, tonight I'm going to spare Israel and I'm going to judge Egypt. He said, put blood on your doorposts and I will spare you, I will pass over you. Every household must sacrifice a lamb and apply the blood. Using New Testament theological language, we would say that the lamb was sufficient to save anyone and everyone, whosoever would believe God and respond to his gracious offer. It was a universal offer of salvation to anyone who would sacrifice the lamb and then give evidence of faith by putting the blood on the doorposts. The lamb would only be effective for those who actually applied its blood. Only they were actually spared. The Apostle Paul wrote of Jesus Christ, he is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. As God's lamb, he has made the way of salvation available to all mankind, but a person must respond to the cross. One commentator said, it is not sufficient for the safety of men that Christ died. His precious blood must be sprinkled on their hearts. It wouldn't have done an Israelite or an Egyptian any good to butcher and cook and eat lamb but fail to apply its blood. That application was a passive response of faith, believing that this terrifying angel of the Lord would see it and spare you. And you know, that's a, you know we know a whole lot more than the Jews. That was a, a, a moment of faith. Moses said, this, this terrifying being is coming and he's going, he has so much power, he's going to just immediately kill any firstborn human or animal. It's going to be terrible. A plague like you've seen, never seen before nor ever will again. If you put a little bit of lamb's blood on your door, it'll pass over you. It almost sounds like snake oil salesman, right? I mean, what could that possibly do? And yet, because of everything they'd seen and up to that point, they thought, by faith, we will go ahead and do that and we'll wait through the night to see God bring that to pass. God told Moses about the Passover lamb, and now he tells the Israelites. Verse 21, then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. You must simply apply it and by doing so give evidence that you believe God. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. In la uh, later in Exodus, we'll again look at the Passover and the other calendar feasts. We'll answer the question in some detail, do we as Christians need to observe the feasts? I'll give you a preview of the answer. No, we don't. We are under no obligation to observe them. And in fact, we ought to avoid them seeing their inferior shadows of what we now have in substance in relationship with Jesus. A lot of people are gravitating back to these rituals, seeing some kind of, uh, you know, uh, spirituality in them. But the, when you read the book of Hebrews, it's clear his message is these are inferior to what we have as superior. After lunch today, if you want ice cream, would you go to inferior dairy or to superior dairy? 
No, seriously, if they, were, if they were next door to each other, would you, would you say, you know what, inferior dairy, I have fond memories of that. Remember how they used to give you just a dime's worth of ice cream? Uh, you know, let's, let's go do that. No, you would go to superior dairy. And, and so Christians that return to the law and to these rituals, I'm not saying we can't be enriched by them and see their symbolism. We're talking all about that this morning, and it's heavy. But that doesn't mean I have to go to them and, and, and that I'll get anything out of them. They point to Jesus, and guess what? I know Jesus now. I don't need a shadow of Jesus. Jesus, are you in the shadow somewhere? No, he's in the light. And so anyway, we'll talk more about that, but just don't feel under any obligation. They're for the Jews. They're for the nation of Israel. Keep that distinct. Verse 25, it will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised that you shall keep this service. God had a land for them, but a whole lot more. Observing the feasts, all of them, Israel would see God's plan to use them as the preeminent nation of the world in order to bring Gentiles into every other nation uh, to faith in him. It shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Then you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshiped. The annual observance would be like a game of Pictionary or draw something in which the kids would see salvation depicted in these elements. There was an immediate response of reverence and worship. You know, it encourages me about this time of reflection we do at the end of our service to have an immediate time of reverence and worship after we've sung to the Lord and after we've heard from the Lord and hopefully received his message. And then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. They heard God's word, they went away and did what it said. Hopefully that describes each of us any time we read or hear God's word or any time that we are prompted by his Holy Spirit. Now this question, when did the Lamb of God's sacrifice save you, it's intended to elicit what we call a testimony. You should be able to say when you realize that Jesus Christ's universal offer of salvation became personally effective in your life. It may be that it happened when you were merely a child and that you know that you know that your whole life you've trusted Christ. Maybe you're more like me and you got saved later in life as an adult and you can point to that specific time when your heart understood that you were a sinner in need of a savior and that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God vicariously slain on your behalf so that you could have eternal life. You know, um, a lot of times it usually comes out in, in the initial counseling you do with a couple that wants to get married. And uh, sometimes it's a, a gal or a guy from the church and they've met somebody else from outside, you know. <laughs> I'm just kidding. And so you don't really know the person and you've asked the, you know, the, the person you know, hey, are they a Christian? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. And so then you sit there and you say, hey, well, you know, let me ask you this. When did you come to know Jesus? I went to church as a young boy. Okay. Is that when you came to know Jesus? Well, I, I believe in God. And you look at the other person. Why are you making me do this? And they say something like, well, he or she is, you know, a lot nicer person than all the Christians I know. And then you're like, you're deep into it now. 
I can't marry you. You're a Christian wanting to marry a non-Christian. Well, no, I'm a Christian. No, you're not. You don't have a testimony. You're, you know, you're not a Christian because you went to church or that you know God. And, and so it's a, you know, if I were to go around the room today, it's just gut level stuff, and I asked you, give me your testimony of when you came to know Christ, the Christians in here would get all excited. You couldn't shut them up. You have to limit it to, you know, 30 seconds. They just keep talking. There's nothing a Christian likes to do more than talk about when they came to know the Lord, especially if you did so as an adult. But then eventually we'd come to somebody who would say, well, I believe in God. Well, I'm a good person. Or just pass. If that's you this morning, Jesus Christ is your Savior, but you have to believe. You have to apply that blood to your life in a personal way by faith believing God's message. You're a sinner headed for a threefold death. You're already dead in trespasses and sins. You're dying physically, no matter what kind of shape you think you're in. And third, you're gonna die eternally. You're gonna be separated from God. And so if that is you, then during this time where we are in reverent worship of the Lord, waiting on the Lord, come up and talk to one of our guys and uh, tell them you wanna give your life to Jesus Christ and they'll help you pray and open up your heart to the Lord. Let's pray.